at any time, the culture isn't right for the people or the people don't feel valued or they're not able to work together and they start having too many people problems in our office politics and all the other things that can happen. It doesn't matter who they are. The tech disappears. And if what you're trying to do is build an ultimate solution and build a group of people who can then build other solutions, then you have to focus on. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Really excited today. We've got a successful sort of from the DOD to a high flying startup. Very interesting transition. We've got Ian from Malaria here. Um, excited to unpack not just sort of the, the great career you had sort of in uniform, but how you've used that and what lessons you've been able to learn and bring over to another really sort of cutting edge, fast moving, high flying organization like Illyria. So, first, Thanks for being here. No, thank you very much for having me. And then uh, let's start with a little bit, give the folks your background. I know I've got the benefit of sort of knowing and following your journey, but sort of what did it look like while you were in the service and then transition and a little bit about what you guys are up to now? Yeah, sure. Um, so 23 years active duty. I retired last year. Um, all of my active duty time was in the Intel and special operations world. Uh, a lot of that was kind of traditional um, unit support, downrange support, deployments, all the normal ones you would expect, uh, you know, starting in 2000 and moving on from there. Uh, and then at a certain point, probably about 10 years ago, I got lucky enough uh, to jump into a world where we were building and purchasing a lot of bespoke things, bespoke sensors, bespoke aircraft, just things that we needed uh, that didn't meet the, the standard PEO model that, you know, we weren't buying a thousand of it, it was two. And uh, we needed it in a week, uh, which was great because you got to test a lot of really new capabilities and see kind of how the process could work. And from there, I started moving into this emerging technology world really for the rest of my career. Uh, I spent some time in California, both at Beale Air Force Base and Edwards Air Force Base, where I got to focus on a lot of what we were doing at the time was cutting edge data science. For the DOD, it was cutting edge, you know, moving into the cloud and what would that look like and how would we prepare data for, for analysis. And then kind of got into the whole DIU was just down the road. They were starting out, kind of learning what they were going to do. Um, and this is where we met with, you know, DIU and the entire Kessel Run uh, process with Enrique Odi and Brian Kroger and, you know, all those kind of uh, legends of DIU. Um, but I got to see DIU transform between DIU 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. Um, hung out with InQtel for a little while as well. Again, scouting new technologies, checking out emerging technologies. And then that led me to Edwards Air Force Base. And, you know, I, I could bring up every base, but I think these few were really uh, transformational in my, my journey and my understanding of things because Edwards is focused on all developmental tests, really for any fixed wing cyber or AI platform for the Air Force. And so, again, seeing this, what a structured acquisition process looks like as it, moved, it moves into structured developmental test, operational test, and then hopefully presenting a, a, 
you know, operational capability for the warfighter. What are the, the issues in between? How does that work? Um, it also means you get to see everything that's going on with legacy aircraft like the B-52 and how we're modernizing those aircraft, along with what's coming in from the B-21, NGAD, all of the latest and greatest programs. Um, and so it was a great opportunity there. Again, I stayed in California, which allowed me to get involved with everything that was going on in the um, aerospace valley in Palmdale and all around LA, all along with Silicon Valley and, and Stanford and everything that was going on there. That led me to the Pentagon, which was my final assignment. Uh, they brought me up here uh, to join a team called the Strategic Studies Group. Uh, and on the surface, it looks kind of like a think tank, and it is. Uh, but at the same time, they bring in a lead Brit colonel from the UK, uh, a lead French colonel, a lead Japanese and German colonel. And so what our job was, was to go around for General Brown and answer a couple questions. And maybe he had a question on digital transformation. So we'd spend a year uh, looking at the best in class VC and startups in the UK, US and France, write a report on what we thought was important, send that to all three of those chiefs of staff. So the chief of staff for us, US Air Force, CAS in the UK and the equivalent in France. Um, and then they would say, you know what? I like what you're talking about. Lines one and five, go do those things. And then we would go action those items. So instead of just being a think tank, we could action the items. And so we did digital transformation, uh, human machine teaming, and, and how do those actually translate into Air Force development, Air Force procurement, um, talent management, all of these things. Uh, and so I did that up until the end of 2022 or mid-2022 uh, when I retired from the Air Force due to, you know, I got a kid in high school and I wanted to keep him in one school for the entire four years uh, and was lucky enough to find a company at the time in stealth called Deliria. Um, and I got to join them right before they were coming out of stealth. Yeah. So, I mean, unbelievable career. I think the ability to look at sort of the analytical side, the ability to be at that, the practical application of technology side down in the operational community. And then sort of rounding out at that very strategic, how are we thinking about sort of next ridgeline type technology? What led you to Illyria? And what are you guys working on? Because I think that's the cliffhanger now. Some folks would be like, well, that's a really interesting journey. What are you working now? Yeah. So in that whole emerging technology, you know, transition or, or path, we'll call it, um, one of the cool things, especially at InQtel, and then uh, I got to hang out with Insight Partners for a little while. Insight Partners is a, a large venture capital company, kind of series A through series E, mainly in the SaaS world. Um, they do have a couple of defense investments, though. But anytime you hang out with people in the venture capital community, what you find is they get to look at really new technology before anybody else. And so depending on their pipeline, they're getting decks every day, every week from brand new companies. You know, if they're focused on seed stage, they start seeing companies that are really two people in a garage with an idea. No product yet. They're still building, but it's an idea. And when you see all of the latest and greatest ideas from, from really smart people, um, you get a feel for not only what's available now, but what technology is coming down the pipe. And then how to actually get it from two guys in a garage with an idea to a hundred person organization making, you know, hundred million in ARR um, and using VC capital to actually to facilitate and to really increase the velocity of that capital and technology. But in the end, you get to review a lot of new technology. Um, I say that to say at the, originally, I thought I was going to jump out and jump immediately into venture capital. That's actually, you know, a goal of mine later on. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, I realized that 
one of the key things once you invest in a company is you also need to help them. You, you got to help your, help your portfolio companies. And I can help them with defense and I can help them understand these worlds. Uh, but I had never been part of a company that had gone from two people to 50 people. I'd never dealt with what HR system do you use and, and how do you figure out uh, project management for the first time? And how do you build and scale not only the technology, but the people and the organization and the business processes? And I've done some of that in the military, but not in the same way as being in a, an actual company. So I figured that was a gap in my knowledge. And so I really started looking hard at trying to get to a small company um, so I could learn all of those processes uh, and at the same time, find a company that was doing something really great because I enjoyed my time in national security and I wanted to make sure if I was going to focus all my time on something, it needed to be something I was passionate about. And uh, I did a lot of um, soul searching when I was leaving the military and I found the two things that I was passionate about was national security and helping people. And I figured I could do both of those better if I joined a company that had those same values. And so, like I said, I got lucky and uh, found Illyria just as they were uh, coming out of stealth and what the company does. So Illyria is two things. So Illyria came out of Google. They're not a Google company, but the technologies that we have came out of Google and, and decades of research and development happened within Google and Google X. Um, and so first is what we call Spacetime. It's a software orchestration platform. Uh, essentially, if you see any graphic about JADC2 or you look at the future of really any government agency, uh, there's a need for not only using bespoke government communications because they have some really refined uh, communications and waveforms and uh, crypto, but then there's all this research and development and things happening on the commercial side. If you look at ISR, for instance, uh, the DOD's had ISR for a long time. It's great ISR. Uh, but then Planet and Capella and, and ISI and all these companies sprung up and were able to actually uh, put their own capability out there. Well, it'd be a shame to not take advantage of that capability. And so how do you do that at scale? Um, and that's what Illyria does with communications is, is connecting, you know, Link 16 to optical links to a KA or KU or to any of the big SATCOM providers you can think of and mixing that with LTE. So, you know, when you're using your cell phone and you walk around in your house and you're on Wi-Fi, and then as soon as you leave, you're on LTE, but as a user, you really don't see a difference. Um, that's what we're trying to do, not only for the DOD, um, but for commercial companies as well. And so that's half of the company is a, a bunch of engineers that have been working on these problems for a long time and actually uh, solved many of them for Google, bringing that technology and really that team uh, to the commercial market. And then there's another side, which is the deep tech hardware side. Um, which is free space optics communication. And so if you think of, you know, a fiber optic cable, you know, at, at a certain point, the entire world moved from copper to, to fiber. And all of a sudden, data started being transmitted through light. Uh, the same thing is starting to happen uh, in the air. So everything we use right now is mainly RF. Um, it's somewhere on the RF spectrum. It's great because we know how to use it. It's ubiquitous. We can use it everywhere. At the same time, there's a huge signature there. You can see RF. You can actually see it on a spectrum analyzer. There's limitations to what you can send. Uh, as we get into free space optical communication, our company focuses on building optical payloads. So we send that exact same data through light, but we send it through the air. And so I could be sitting here and talk to an aircraft 20 miles away and actually throw data rates above 100 gigabits a second, which is something you just can't do right now with RF. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of very interesting, I think, tech to unpack there. But what I think will be well, something interesting for the sort of the, the listeners here is you take that sort of awesome career, right? Cutting edge, looking at emerging tech, really understanding sort of how do the different gears work in the, in the huge sort of institution. And then you come to sort of a commercial version, high-flying, really interesting, bleeding-edge tech. 
where are you, where are you surprised as you turn around and look at, Hey, all right. I played on this side for 23 years. I really was involved in all of the sort of innovation and tech scouting and that. And then you come to the commercial side. What's harder than you thought it would be? What's easier than you thought it'd be? Because I think everyone maybe subtly in the back of their head is like, yeah, hey, this will be, I'll just hop on the other side of the table and it'll be great. I think deep down inside, everybody knows it's way harder than that. But I'd be really curious, sort of, what's your experience been so far there? Yeah, I think th- there's a couple things. Um, one, especially, you know, if you look at the, the higher level enlisted. So really anytime you're, you start managing people in the Air Force or in the DOD uh, at large, you get to a point where you no longer get to do your actual job, your technical AFSC, your MOS, um, and you really are a, a leader. And, and you could spend your entire time leading, managing people, going to staff meetings, doing the leadership functions. Uh, and if you don't try hard, if you don't try hard, it's going to be very difficult to stay technically proficient in whatever it is that you were originally trained to do. Um, but over time now, that, that domain, that ops floor, that flight line, whatever it is, it, it progresses. It keeps moving forward. And what ends up happening is you end up being a leader who can't actually make um, well-informed decisions because you don't understand the technology as well as you did. And it's always a constant struggle because if you spend all your time on the flight line, on the ops floor, in the operational domain, there's a lot of things that aren't being taken care of. And so this is something that senior leaders always have to deal with. When you get to uh, the outside, the commercial world, you may be an 06, an 07, an E9, an E8. You may be a senior leader, uh, a senior manager, um, but then you come into, and especially at a startup level, you don't get to lead. There's no one for me to lead. My job is to do whatever the company needs. And this is where I think the special operations world it's very similar. Um, in the special operations world, everybody has their, their MOS or their AFSC. You have the thing that you're better at than everybody else. But at any time, and in one of the first instances I had, I had to start working on radios. I'm not a radio operator. I'm an Intel guy. But the mission at the time needed radio operations to work. I'm not as good as the people who know how to do it, but I can help. You know, I can hold a flashlight. I can fill sandbags. I can do all the other things that need to be done to make the mission happen. Sometimes that may be digging into PDFs and learning, you know, how do these radios work? Um, and that mentality that allows you to switch le- or, or quickly switch from one job to another and where no job is beneath you um, and no job is really above your ability. You just need time to learn it. I think really translates well to the startup world because uh, coming in, we brought a lot of engineers over from Google, but many of the team finds themselves, you know, for an hour doing marketing and then you're doing program management and then you're doing project management and then you're understanding, you know, skiffs and facilities and how those work. And then you're doing BD. And then by the way, you have to switch into a sales mode um, and you have to do this all the time. You can't say, well, I'm not a sales guy because the lifeblood of the company is the revenue. If you can't bring in revenue, you don't have a job tomorrow. And so everybody's a sales guy. Now, at some point, we will grow large enough and have this massive sales team and sales processes. But until that happens, everybody does everything. And I think deliberately, I wanted to do that because it allowed me to get a lot of experience in different sectors of the startup world at the same time. Some stuff I like, some stuff I don't. And you get to learn that over time. So I think that's one of the things that people, some people have a hard time with because they really want to come out and lead but they, they don't realize that they don't have the, the technical knowledge, um, maybe the infrastructure knowledge, or even just the commercial you know, process flow knowledge. They can learn it quickly, though, if they have the right attitude um, and if they have the will to learn. But I, I found that, that people do have a hard time with that when they transition, if they're not thinking about that beforehand. Yeah, it's funny. One of the, uh, one of the lines we've always sort of used at Second Front is everybody does Windows, right? There's, to your point earlier, there's really no job that's sort of beneath or you know, outside the reach of everybody, everybody sort of does everything when it's required. 
that absolutely is a configuration challenge for folks that are coming out of an organization that's sort of predicated on like timing grade, your rank, like what is your role description? And it makes it challenging. I think it's important for folks to hear as you're thinking about sort of making a transition from a, a pretty rigid sort of institution into a startup. While a startup sort of sounds cool and I think it's glittery from afar, it's pretty chaotic internally and it's really unstructured. So if you are looking for, or you're very comfortable with like a fixed career progression and like this many years here, this many years here, this many years here, it's something you've got to sort of maybe reconsider or reevaluate. Not if a startup is right for you, just those expectations as you're transitioning. Yep. And then coming in, I think one of the challenges you face as a leader in these organizations is recognizing that at the beginning, there's going to be a bunch of space in between that sort of fixed career path and the reality, the operational reality of a startup. But as that startup starts to mature, you're building the organizational lattice to enable that. So that was going to be my question is you're looking at the future. How are you thinking about maturing sort of the organizational structure to create those on-ramps and that space to sort of maybe meet people closer to where they are when they're transitioning out? Yeah. So I, you know, there's a, there's a few ways I'm, because I've built and I've been in large organizations, I do understand some of the, the needs of a large organization. How do you onboard new employees and how, how do you onboard new people to your unit? I mean, it's essentially the exact same thing. And so, you know, as I'm going through my learning journey and understanding what, what do I need to do? Um, I'm quickly building, you know, what are the TTPs for a new employee? Um, and not for the entire company, but for somebody in, in my section kind of focused on BD and the public sector side, what are the things that, you know, our CTO said that I thought was amazing? You know, and so I start putting all my words of wisdom down. And what is that, that random YouTube video that I watched that really helped it hit home for me? Um, and slowly that will turn in to our, you know, to my onboarding guide for this section of the company. Because if you're going to understand the program in the public sector side, you need to not only understand the DOD but you, and government uh, at large, but you need to understand this technology. Because one of the things, and I think you guys probably run into the same issue, some larger companies, you, you have a BD team that goes out and they talk and they kind of, they, they drive in hopeful leads essentially, or you have cold sales teams that go out and drive leads. And at some point you get to a technical exchange um, you get to, you bring in your engineers and, and technical account managers, and they have more of a whiteboard session. Almost every meeting I'm in, engineering pops up very quickly. And so if I said, I can't do that, let me wait until I can get the engineers. I delay a month, I delay two months, I might never talk to the person again. And so I can't be uh, a public sector guy and not be an engineer. And I'm not I didn't build this product. We have amazing engineers that built it, but I have to soak up as much information as I can from them and, and harness their knowledge and harness their power so that quickly I can get to a mid-level of depth in our conversations. So the customer comes back going, okay, I got what I needed. And then at a certain point, we're way beyond my ability and we get a, you know, a qualified engineer that actually built the program and built the line of code that we're talking about. But if I said, that's not my job, I don't know how to do that more than once. And you can say, I don't know how to do that the one time, and then you spend the rest of the next you know, week learning it, um, I, I can't be successful. Um, and so that, it's another issue with people coming in. But hopefully what I can do is start to build that. Um, I can't wait until I can start bringing in SkillBridge interns as well. But I need, to be, I need the company to be at a point where we can bring in a SkillBridge intern and, and not take advantage of them, but actually 
make sure that they they have a worthwhile process and procedure as opposed to bringing them in and just letting them do busy work for us. I need to build the right yeah, training not just program. Free labor. Correct. Because yeah. <laughs> now I got to be back in the, the eyes of a veteran getting out. What do, what do, do they do need right to know? Yeah, yeah, I need to get them in marketing for a little bit. I need to get them in BD. I need to get them with the technical teams. They need to leave way smarter than I found them, uh, or I'm doing a disservice to the veteran, to my company, uh, and to the SkillBridge program at large. Yeah, so there's two really interesting points there I'm going to thread on. And then I know we're turning the corner sort of on final approach. One, sort of the importance of sort of playbooks and starting to build in, you know, like minimum viable process. Uh, I think one of the biggest learnings, like pleasant surprise, but also just leveling up at second front was when we brought in a talent acquisition leader at Amanda Gregg, she's found unbelievable, absolutely leveled up how we think about everything from like that first touch recruiting all the way through onboarding your whole employee journey. And it's just a, it's absolutely different experience. Well, I think the fact that you called it an employee journey that's not you as a as an engineer saying how do I make my product better. That's you as a you know an acquisition or a um, your professional. When you can have somebody focused on their section and and passionate about their section and spending all of their time understanding that their product really is that new employee um, and the outreach and uh, the reputation they you know, they have on social media and LinkedIn, if they're always just cold calling everybody on LinkedIn with a terrible message and they never walk people through and go, you know what, what would I need to know as somebody who just lost their job and, and, and is in dire straits and needs help um, or somebody who's looking to, to really level up their career or their passion, if they're not putting themselves in, in those customers, because that's the, their customer at the time, and in your eyes, because again, you're one of their customers and the rest of the employees of the company, then it doesn't come out the way it should. When it's a 10% job and you're just doing it to, to knock right. it out, it's a completely different experience. Right. You got to invest in it if you want to get the actual return so. on it. And then the second point on SkillBridge, um, I think that is an underappreciated thing of like making sure you're investing into that. I can say with a point of pride, we ran the numbers. We had to run it for something else this week. So I actually know the stat. We're 66% conversion rate on skill bridgers to FTs. That's great. Front. And we set out, we didn't sort of set out for it to be a, a kind of like rent to buy. It was a, hey, this is a cool way. We have a bunch of sort of veterans who've made transitions in the organization. And we're about, you know, half, 40% non sort of veterans. So good, healthy mix. And the goal was like, hey, we can be a good transition step for folks that are trying to figure out, to your point, what do I want to do next? What does marketing actually mean? What does being a PM actually mean? What does sales actually mean? And we found that sort of with that investment and sort of talent acquisition and management and actually thinking about the journey and at the human level, what is that experience like juxtaposed with the culture and the mission of the company? We've had a tremendous hit rate with SkillBridge and our, I mean, staunch advocates of the program. No, I think it's, so I went to my, the very first thing I did with Elyria is I went to a jam session. It was the first real employee jam session after coming out of uh, stealth. And so it was the entire company. You know, we were 28 people, I think, at the time. So the entire company comes together. I'm, you know, our CEO is a retired uh, Marine Corps recon guy, um, but he, he's been out for a little while. So people don't really immediately un realize that he's uh, prior service, but we don't have a ton of prior service in the company. So when I got in, the, some of the very first questions I got were from our engineering team who had never talked to anybody in the military. Um, and I think as you onboard new people, you're going to have more and more people that come in that aren't 
military affiliated or government affiliated. They've never had a clearance before. You know, so the amount of questions I get on what is the difference between Space Force and Air Force and Space Com and Space Force, those are two different things. And so part of this is trying to, to ensure that because one of our customers is the DOD, that all of our employees actually understand who these customers are. How do they work? Um, how do you go into a room and talk to these people? What does it mean? When it, why is everybody standing up? You know, we had a meeting today uh, with government and it was at 7.30. 7.30 in the morning we got there. It was great. It was a normal, you know, military meeting. Not everybody's used to a 7.30 meeting. And so trying to make sure that those two cultures can translate. And I think when you bring SkillBridge interns in, another thing that you, you know, are able to do is expose the rest of your company to a different part of the DOD that maybe you weren't, you know, I was Air Force. I got to do some rotations with the Army and the Navy, uh, but I haven't spent a ton of time with the Marine Corps. And so having a skill bridge intern that's a, you know, uh, a Marine is, is a great thing because it fills a gap that, that maybe we have um, or that maybe one person has in the organization while at the same time developing a veteran, helping them with that transition uh, because the uh, unemployment rates are just are horrible. But the ones that I see that start early, that really start getting into this world and planning their transition and planning your skill bridge. So I'll, I'll put on my DOD hat for a minute. You got to plan your skill bridge. You can't just say, I'm going to do skill bridge and not look at yourself and say, here are my gaps. I'm going to this company for a reason because this company will either teach me something that I don't know, or I think I want to do this and I need a risk-free way of trying it out because if I don't like it, I can quit. Not the skill bridge, but I can do something else when I get out. But have a plan for it rather than just saying, I have six months, let me skill bridge. That's not a thing. The SkillBridge is a program to allow you to de-risk this transition. And so you have to take advantage of the opportunity and, and plan it out properly. Yeah, I'll say before I ask the, the sort of final question here, I do love that I think at the beginning of this, I thought we were going to be geeking out on a bunch of high tech. We can do that too. And we went into the criticality of the people and the process and sort of the elegant simplicity behind all of these super complicated technical organizations at the end, it still breaks down to sort of being at that pure sort of human level. And how are we empowering and enabling and building sort of the right organizational lattices? And I love that because, again, I think, I think folks forget about that. I think it's a challenge as a leader as you continue to grow to forget about, like, it just, it, this is a people problem. Yeah, I, we could sit here and talk about free space optics and deep space and, you know, how do you get something to work in Martian orbit? And, and that's one of the reasons I joined Elyria because the very first meeting I was in and every meeting since then, I'm surrounded by people that are much smarter than me. And when you're surrounded by people like that, it brings you up. I have to because I got to write things down and every night I'm, I'm learning new things because I have to go on YouTube to learn the things that they said just nonchalantly. But it makes you smarter over time. And if you're not in a place where you like that and that's happening, it's probably the wrong place for you. But at the end of the day, even though we have amazing engineers and amazing teams building amazing tech, there's all people building all of those things. And so if at any time the culture isn't right for the people or the people don't feel valued um, or they're not able to work together and they start having too many people problems with inner office politics and all the other things that can happen, it doesn't matter who they are. The tech disappears. And if what you're trying to do is build an ultimate solution and build a group of people who can then build other solutions, then you have to focus on them. I love it. And I'll foot stomp the, uh, while Ian's looking at YouTube to learn stuff, I at least twice a day am Googling something. Someone on my team said, and be like, I wonder what that actually means. <laughs> so find a place where, where you're not the smartest in the room. That's how you know you're in the right room. Um, all right, last question. King for a day, ability to sort of wave a wand, change something. And I'll, I'll frame it as sort of the national security technology kind of ecosystem. What's the one thing you change and why? So I actually got to work on this because I felt so passionate about it 
Um, so we helped build and, and now a company called Shift runs it, but the Defense Ventures Program. So it's a program. It's almost like people have heard of education with industry where you send military members out to industry for a year. It's a great program. However, you do it for a year, which is expensive and it's time consuming and it messes up uh, moving cycles and command cycles and all this. So I know the Air Force, the last I checked, they're able, only able to send 75 people a year. We fought really hard to make 10 of those people enlisted. 10 out of 280,000 is not enough. So we built a program called Defense Ventures, which allows us to send in eight-week sprints. So you don't leave your command. You don't have to move. You don't leave your family. Um, sometimes you can even do it remote. You go into these venture capital firms. You go into startups and you learn as much as you can. And then you bring that knowledge and network back to you in the military. Half of the problems I was able to solve for Airmen was because you know I knew somebody who's a professor at Stanford who had studied this problem for decades, and I could call him up and ask him a question and, and focus on people that were, again, way smarter than I was um, and connect my airmen to them or, or bring in a new technology and bring in solutions engineers from NVIDIA or, or some other company to, to look at some of our really intense problems. And so that, uh, that constant communication between industry and government was huge. At the same time, the last six months, we started working a project for General Brown where we wanted to do the reverse of that. We wanted to bring in people from industry. So, you know, engineers from any of these prime companies or from startups and put them into the government for six months at a time. Now, you get into a lot of legal and HR issues of, you know, who pays their salary and are they going to stay insured at their company? And, you know, again, the military doesn't have, they have headcount given to them by Congress, but it doesn't change if you run out of money that year. We'll figure out a way, you know, you're going to get your salary in the military. You can't do that in your company. I couldn't take two of your engineers that are vital to you, put them in the government. They would learn a lot, but at the same time, you're losing a ton and, it, and you have to figure out how you're going to get to, uh, you know, your next year of, of salary and headcount and revenue. Um, and so there's this constant um, miscommunication, but I think in misunderstanding between government and commercial, but the more that we can um, bring everybody together, you run into issues with, well, if it's a cloud engineer and they come over and they advocate for a certain cloud solution, does that mess up an acquisition? So we have to go through a lot of ethics. Um, but the more that we can integrate so that commercial companies can understand government use cases, government problems, and government people, and the more that government people can do the same on the commercial side, all of a sudden we have teams of people now, cross-functional teams. They all just happen to have different tools, um, different authorities. There's things I can do and say now. As a, as a civilian that I couldn't say as an active duty member and I couldn't build as an active duty member um, and I couldn't jump on a project as an active duty member. Um, but making sure we have teams that can do that and then the power and, and technology that comes with being in government, that has to be interwoven at all levels all the time. And so the more we can do that, I think the better off everybody's going to be. Yeah, I love it. The sort of message of we're, we're bringing together, we're creating that sort of shared awareness, almost that meshed kind of identity that'll absolutely move the community forward. Yep. Well, heck yeah, brother. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you. It was a you. long time coming, so thanks for making time. And, no, appreciate uh, the invite. Couldn't be, couldn't be happier to have been able to share the stage with you a little bit. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes, so check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.